Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your hosts, Rania Kalik. I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Rania. And for those who are watching, as you can see, we have quite a panel of guests today. Uh, we have Anne Wright who is a retired U.S. Army colonel, spent 29 years in the Army, and then 16 years in the State Department as a diplomat before resigning in 2003 in opposition to the U.S. war on Iraq. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Anne. Uh, and then we also have Matthew Ho. He's a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a member of the Eisenhower Media Network. And he served as a in the Marine Corps in Iraq and also resigned from the State Department uh, in 2009 over the war in Afghanistan. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks, Ranga. Nice to see you guys. It's great to have both of you on for this moment. We're going to be talking about Afghanistan. Um, and it's exciting because both of you, of course, uh, as I mentioned in your introductions, resigned from the State Department over your opposition to one war or another. So I guess let's start by talking about what are your initial thoughts over what we've been seeing, what we've seen happening in Afghanistan with the recent developments uh, as, you know, the Taliban's kind of eaten up more of the country and you have this response from a lot of the U.S. media, as well as former and current generals, having this sort of panic over the withdrawal from Afghanistan, given what's happening on the ground and saying, see, we told you so. What's your response to that sort of uh, rhetoric and reaction to the U.S. withdrawal? I guess let's let's start with you, Anne, and then we can move to Matthew. Well, uh, one other part of my background that we didn't mention there was that I was on the small team that reopened the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan in late December of 2001. So I was there from the very beginning. Um, the, when I got there, U.S. Special Forces had already been there since October. CIA, we actually had many more CIA paramilitary there than we did U.S. military. And mm -hmm. they were pretty well running the show as far as uh, uh, going after al-Qaeda, uh, and then eventually, you know, kind of trying to put the Taliban away. Um, uh, the, uh, um, you know, what's happening now uh, was uh, predicted, was predictable and predicted. Yeah. I mean, the very first uh, cables that we sent back from, from Kabul, from our tiny little embassy of five people, was that there's going to be a very short period of time uh, that, that the U.S. has before it becomes what uh, had become to all the other foreign invaders, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, the shelf life of foreign invaders in Afghanistan is not very long. You know, 10 years for the Soviets, um, 20 years for the U.S., but eventually they pull out for a variety of reasons, and a lot of it having to do uh, with the, the culture of Afghanistan, which is the Afghans are very proud people, very uh resourceful people with minimal resources, and uh, uh, they can kick the butt of any military that comes in. And whether they're called the Mujahideen during the Soviet period or the Taliban and militias now, uh, there is this, there is a very conservative cultural uh, aspect to, to Afghanistan that despite all of the history that people were reading about uh, as the U.S. went into Afghanistan, it's like lessons learned by any any group uh, are never uh, fully accepted. Uh, 
and and worked on and acknowledged. So this was uh, predicted and predictable. And as for you, Matt, I guess, how would you respond to the same question? You know, this kind of reaction like, oh, now that the Taliban's eating everything up, like we should have, this is, we told you this was going to happen. America shouldn't have stayed or shouldn't have left. Yeah, it is. It was predictable. I mean, you build a house of cards, the house of cards is eventually going to collapse. Uh, I mean, this was inevitable. Um, the, uh, I think the narrowness of commentary on this is what frustrates me the most. Of course, yeah, I'm sad and devastated for the Afghan people. I mean, this is a, this is a war that didn't have to happen. Um, I mean, it's clear that, that this did not have to happen. If, if things had been done differently in 2001, if we had a, we, we, we literally did not accept the surrender of the Taliban in 2001. They chose to surrender. I mean, this is well documented now, both with official and on a, and, and, and journalist accounts. But they, they literally, the Taliban literally uh, offered to surrender, and the United States wanted victory. Um, and this, this is, you know, what occurred then when the Obama administration came in. The Taliban were offering to talk. Uh, one of the reasons why I resigned my post, because we wouldn't talk with the Taliban. They were coming in trying to talk with us. They were making overtures uh, through uh, 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 third party groups, uh, through uh, uh, media uh, and refused to talk. And so this narrowness uh, in perspective and understanding and kind of like the way you just phrased it, Ranya, where everybody is, is hysterical right now because the Taliban is, is they've been taking over now for they've been winning this war for more than 12 years now, at least. Um, every year, the Taliban have gotten stronger. Every year, they've gotten larger. Their finances have improved every year. Every year, they put more uh, IEDs or roadside bombs into the ground than they did the year before. Every year, they kill more foreign soldiers. And when the foreign soldiers left, they started killing Afghan soldiers. And every year, they kill more. Yeah, I just heard a New York Times journalist, Pamela Constable, who uh, speaking about this. And she spoke of this as if the Taliban hadn't launched attacking years, that all of a sudden these, this uh, uh, onslaught of the Taliban was only because Joe Biden had pulled out the remaining 2,500 troops, as if those 2,500 troops, almost all of who have been confined to their bases for the last several years, were doing anything to prevent the to fight the Taliban. I mean, they were doing training. Yeah, there are some commandos there, but most of them were doing training or logistics or or, or, or planning. Um, so this idea that somehow all of a sudden uh, there should be the hysteria, uh, this is what, as Ann said, people predicted this uh, in 2001. Um, you know, so it, it, you know, and you see it in other ways too, that the issues with the Afghan translators, which is again, another thing that's heartbreaking. Um, veterans groups and refugee groups have been jumping up and down about this for seven or eight years now. Um, ever since President Obama started withdrawing the bulk of Western forces from Afghanistan around in 2013, 2014, veterans groups and refugee groups are saying, we got to get these people out. And the American government did nothing until now. But now the crisis with the translators and their families is occurring supposedly because of Biden's withdrawal. We, so just... The, the whole thing is infuriating. It makes it worse because discussion on this is so limited, so narrow, and just continues with these, uh, you know, uh, political narratives, basically, domestic American political narratives. Yeah, you know, and I, I would add to that what is left out of a lot of the conversation, the media coverage of this is the deal the U.S. made before leaving. 
the U.S. absolutely needs to get absolutely had yeah. to leave Afghanistan. We knew that this would happen because ultimately the Taliban is powerful. Uh, and it's kind of like you got to rip the Band-Aid off. But I don't know if you guys looked at the deal or got a chance to see like the the, the negotiations or, 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 or I guess the, the characteristics of the deal, the details of it. But the U.S. essentially left in the most irresponsible and reckless way imaginable by giving all the leverage to the Taliban. Like and that was a deal that Donald Trump made. It was a deal that was like, as long as you don't hurt us. Like it had like it's they kind of like sold the after funding and propping up the Afghan government and building up, you know, these cities that, you know, had these kinds of like little mini states that were kind of created to be like a reflection of the U.S. or whatever. However, the U.S. does state building. The U.S. under Donald Trump then went on to negotiate a deal that essentially gave the Taliban all the political leverage and then act surprised when it's leaving and they're taking over everything like it's, so it's like that's what's getting left out, too, is like it's not the fact that the U.S. is leaving that it's it's become this bad. It's also because of how they went about doing it. I don't if know if I you have any thoughts to add to that. If I could just mention, you know, one the primary U.S. negotiator on those uh, 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 talks with the Taliban has been Salmay Khalizad. Yes. Who is the special, now the title, special negotiator, special envoy for negotiations. Well, Back in 2001, in late 2001, he was appointed by the Bush administration as the U.S. presidential envoy to Afghanistan. So he started arriving in Afghanistan while, while I was there uh, and uh, continued in that role until he uh, was actually appointed as the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan and then the ambassador to Iraq and then the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And then Obama came in, so he was out. Trump came in. He was then appointed as the special negotiator. Well, Zalmay is an Afghan. He was born in Afghanistan. He came to the United States when he was a young kid. So it was really interesting when he arrived back in Afghanistan for the first time since he had left Afghanistan, you know, like 40 years before. I was his escort officer and showed him around Kabul. Oh, Kabul interesting. Yeah, destroyed by not by the Soviets in the war with the Soviets, but by the Mujahideen and the, the warlords uh, whose militias were fighting over territory in Kabul. And, you know, the only damage that was done to the U.S. Embassy in the 12 years that it was closed was by rockets that the Mujahideen were firing at each other and one of them just dropped into the U.S. Embassy compound. Well, all that as a preface that the person who probably had the most dealings with the Afghan, the Afghans, both on the, the government and the Taliban, and as an Afghan uh, himself, was Zalmay Khalizad. And so the, the fact that this uh, deal that the U.S. government signed with the Taliban that totally left out the government of, of Afghanistan, you know, the, it was the negotiations between the U.S. government and the Taliban, and the, the government was left out. The government is now trying to come back in with its own negotiations with the Taliban. But the whole issue of, first, what's going to happen to women in, in Afghanistan? That's that's the big uh, mantra now, what's going to happen? We, we know what the Taliban's history of treatment of, of uh, Afghan women is, and it's not good. It's like you stay in the home, you stay, if you, you come out, you have to, of the home, you have to have a burqa on, you've got to have a male escort from your family. Um, 
I mean, it's uh, no education. Horrible. Yeah, it's it's bad. And that's interesting because, you know, the, the time to really put the pressure on the Taliban was during these negotiations and trying to get concessions, although uh, probably concessions on the role of women uh, would have been thrown out the window by the Taliban anyway, because they're they're yeah. going to do what they what they're culturally is telling them. And it's not, you know, it's not just the Taliban that has a very conservative outlook on women in Afghanistan. It is the Afghan culture. In fact, there was an, a, a survey that was done by the UN, uh, and it's like, uh, I think it was 30%, uh, 30% of the 2,000 men that were surveyed all over Afghanistan said, you know, uh, no, it was 70%. There was only 30% that said women should have a bigger role in, in life. 70% said, yeah, they need to go back to the home. So it is a, a cultural challenge that uh, is trying to be met uh, by the concerns that we all legitimately have for women in Afghanistan. Yeah, that point about women is, is so true. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the origin story of the Taliban is that they come about in, in the south of Afghanistan in the mid-90s to... Um, gain to, to to protect the people from the warlords basically and these warlords were, were raping women freely they were they were robbing people you know and the, so the whole the, the whole taliban origin story centers around them protecting women basically you know from these warlords turns out that you know they had yeah. their own right they had their own vision of, of how do you how you protect women um but these warlords who were doing this banditry, this, this, this raping, this, you know, who are, you know, they're the ones we put back in power when we took the Taliban out. So the yeah. Afghan people have really suffered here because you, you've basically give, we basically, the United States has basically given the Afghan people these last 20 years, two choices, either the Taliban or this government composed of war criminals, warlords, drug lords, that is just, you know, the Afghan government put into to, to practice, they put into law, uh, um, uh, uh, laws that allow men to rape their wives. You I mean, so we put into power a misogynist government. I mean, these, uh, uh, it's got, you know, of course, you're going to have uh, the, the, the propaganda that goes behind it. And, you know, you're going to have um, uh, uh, public relations that show how women are going to school and all that. But for 97 percent of the Afghan women, they're not experiencing that. What they are experiencing is the war, <laughs> which, you know, bless you, you know, but what they are experiencing is the war. Um, and and, and the, 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 hard, the worst thing for women these last 20 years has been. Um, the fact that they uh, and their children have been victimized and brutalized by, you know, either bombs dropped by Americans or bombs put into the ground by the Taliban. But to get back to the, the uh, um, to get back to these 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 peace negotiations, yeah, I mean, basically the negotiations were 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 uh, uh, done for Donald Trump's ego. Uh, right. You know, Donald Trump comes into office, and what, what does he do first? He escalates the war. In Afghanistan, Donald Trump drops more bombs in Afghanistan than, than Obama or Bush did. Now, that's kind of you have to understand the reason for that, though, is because for the first the last half of Obama's presidency, all the planes that have been dropping bombs on Afghanistan were dropping bombs on Syria and Iraq. 
So we, the United States literally just did not have the aircraft to continue the, 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 the pace of bombing that we have been doing in Afghanistan 2010, 2011, 2012 into 2013. Those planes all shifted to Syria and Iraq. But then when Mosul is, is finally uh, retaken, you know, demolished and everything else, those planes are then able to come back and bomb Afghanistan. And that's what Trump does. He makes it look like he you know, gives himself his own decent interval, so to speak, right? And then he sends Zamay Khalazad, possibly the only person in D.C. whose ego comes close to matching Donald Trump's. Um, <laughs> right. Right? I mean, but that's, I think, what you need for something like that. You need a guy who's who wants to go out there and and and, and accomplish this deal that does nothing for anybody but himself and for Donald yeah. Trump. Now, and maybe, uh, and maybe some of and maybe some of his friends. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So you have this deal that was incredibly tr uh, transparent. I urge people to go and look at the Doha agreement. Like it's only what three or four pages long, um, but supposedly there are all these secret annexes that the Afghan government wasn't even allowed to see. So it's even worse than the even worse than the Afghan government being kept out of it. It's it, the whole thing was that there are these secret annexes that they didn't even weren't able to read. So they didn't even know what the details of the deal were that they were kept out of. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that this is how a negotiation goes. You should do it in phases. But the, really, again, when when the the intention, the purpose of the deal for the Americans was to make the American president look good, uh, then, of course, the deal is going to be complete rubbish and garbage and horrific for the Afghan people. And um, but the other, the other part of it is, too, I mean, this is this is what I think. Uh, I, I was arguing other people, I mean, sure AM was saying this as well uh, 12 years ago. Look, if you escalate the war, if you try and win this war militarily and you lose, what are your options then? And there are no options. There, they, I mean, this is it. The Taliban have won the war. This is what victory for the Taliban looks like. And however they choose to go forward now is up to them. I mean, there is, unless the Americans want to go back in and try and fight them again for another 20 years, this is really it. I mean, this is what victory looks like for the Taliban. Um, and the other part of it that makes it really difficult is that you had the Taliban willing to negotiate um, up until uh, and even during, even after the uh, President Obama escalated the war. So when we talk about Obama's about escalation of the war, we have to remember how big it was. A lot of times we hear about this 30,000 troop surge. Well, that came after Obama had already sent 40,000 more troops. So Obama comes into office. There's 30,000 tr American troops in Afghanistan. By the time he ends his first year in office, our first year and a half in office, there's now 100,000 American troops in Afghanistan, 40,000 NATO troops, plus 100,000 contractors. That's a quarter million man army that we had there. I don't think people realized and the, the whole weight and might of American and NATO air power. So I don't think people realized how forceful this was and what this did for the Taliban, because not only did they weather it and were not defeated, they came out, again, stronger every year. So if you had two camps in the Taliban, which we knew there were two camps in the Taliban, those willing to negotiate and those who were insistent on victory, final victory, well, what does that do to your ability to negotiate with them in the future? Because what you've basically done is you have uh, sidelined those who are willing to negotiate and you have proved right those who feel that God is on their side. And, and why isn't God on their side? Their, their ancestors beat the British. Their grandfathers beat the Soviets. They now beat the Americans. Of course, God is on their side, right? I mean, why should they negotiate? So the, the whole what led up to these negotiations 
I'm not really sure what else could have been done except for build a time machine and go back and do none of this. You know, um, I mean, this is, we really, this is yeah. something that's been rolling for years now. And now we're, we're dealing with the inevitability of it. Most people in this country, in the United States, have no idea what's gone on in Afghanistan over the last five to seven years. Because like you say, the only times that we really get any coverage of Afghanistan from the, the, the broader media world is when there's this moment of panic, when the politicians really need to instill panic in people over uh, the conflict. But you know what we have now is uh, these these generals, former generals. Like uh, this past weekend, uh, they trotted out General David Petraeus on CNN to to, to give his commentary. Um, they put John Bolton on TV to give his commentary. Like he has any credibility to speak about this war. And you know, one thing I've noticed is there's this framework that was really really took hold around calling this the forever war. I mean, obviously, like when Barack Obama was campaigning, he would call Afghanistan the good war. But I think more than anything, calling this the forever war was what Afghanistan is probably going to be forever known by, although I realize that some people speak about that as the larger global war on terrorism being the forever war. But the forever war to me is always going to be attached to Afghanistan. And you've seen pundits that are neoconservative or are really attached to continuing this war and, and are, are panicked that Joe Biden is actually going to go through with completing the withdrawal of forces, suggests that there can be some kind of a contingency left behind. Like, so for example, just to, to actually use a specific example for our, our, our conversation here, Max Boot in the in the Washington Post. And I'm sorry that I'm giving him any credibility, but I think he represents the establishment. And you should apologize for triggering everybody by even saying yeah. his name. Yeah, no, I see all the faces <laughs> where like the eyes, the, the eye rolls that just happened on the off camera. Everybody know that, that there was a massive eye roll. Um, and all of our listeners did a collective eye roll. Well, Matthew, Matthew knows him personally because Matthew debated him. Oh, several times. Yeah, no. time. yeah. yeah, yeah. He's the kind of guy who who won't even shake your hand after a debate. Oh. Like that's the kind of guy he is. He's like that's he's that kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. So let me yeah. put this out to both you and Anne because this is just you know I feel like this is the canard that's going to have to be dealt with for the next generation that this could have been continued. So what he and I presume he's not alone in supporting this. They believe because you know correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew and Anne, but right now or, or before the withdrawals, there were only like 3,500 US military forces stationed in Afghanistan. Then there's the contractors and then you've got the NATO forces. So he seems to believe that that really would not require waging a quote unquote forever war to leave those people in there. So I just want you to address this notion that is gonna be put forward by these pundits that because it wasn't at the level or scale of the surge that we saw with Obama, because it's been a reduced force, that somehow it, it, it's easy and it doesn't really constitute a strain of resources. It doesn't really require a lot of manpower and effort of the US. It, like It's well within 
Like, obviously, the issue that is being ignored in their statements and their their advocacy is the fact that they are advocating for a nation building, that they are advocating for an occupation. But it also seems like they're being totally ignorant about what it takes to persecute a war. Well, if I could just mention, you know, in the last uh, probably six years or so, uh, the numbers of the, the U.S. military and NATO military that have been killed in Afghanistan uh, were not killed really in any sort of combat situation. Mm -hmm. They were killed by uh, Afghan soldiers and police turning their weapons on the trainers, both from the United States and from NATO, during a training environment on what was called blue on green. Um, more, more U.S. were killed that way than actually patrols that were going out. And so you ask the question, well, why was that? Well, it's because of all the air power that was being used, all of the assassin drones that were killing people a lot of times around, along the border with uh, Pakistan, uh, where we were dropping bombs, you know, the mother of all bombs, the largest bomb the United States had in its inventory was dropped on Afghanistan. Fortunately, it was in an isolated area. And well, any Afghan that was killed is, is a tragedy. Uh, at least they didn't drop it in a, in a city. Uh, but when you, when you look at what the U.S. was still doing, even with a minor number of people, like 2,500, um, the level of destruction and violence that was going on out in the countryside by the U.S. air power um, was, was being, the blowback to that was coming right down into the bases where mm -hmm. the militias and the Taliban had mm -hmm. put their, their young men and women into these training environments so that they could get the training, so that they could get the access to the equipment. And so you look at Afghanistan now where we have uh, parts of army units uh, that are uh, leaving the battlefield, uh, uh, particularly along the border areas. There are already two incidents where uh, the, the government forces have just kind of given up. Well, in one way, that's kind of the Afghan way. I mean, in the history of Afghanistan is that you don't fight to the till you die. It's you fight to the point where, okay, you guys are winning. You got more weapons this time. You got better leadership. Okay, I give up. I'm coming over to you guys. And so that's, I think, what we're seeing in, in some ways where the Taliban is gaining control pretty pretty quickly because in, in the outlying areas in the countryside, you know, which is mostly Afghanistan, it's not just Kabul, it's the outlying areas. Uh, where where it's very apparent that the Taliban now has the upper hand. And so if you want to live, you go over to their side. Uh, these sorts of things are just not at all put into the equation. And I'll just finish with one point here. The, the retaliation that we've seen by the Taliban on the execution of some of the military units that have, have uh, uh, given up. Um, there was one particular incident where the, the son of one of the Afghan generals, I think he was a major in the military in a special forces unit, um, they had gotten into a big fight with the Taliban and were, you know, were, they were losing, so they gave up. And then the Taliban, and there are videos of this uh, uh, that have been shown, uh, the Taliban executed them right there. Well, if you think back to 2001, what happened then? 
Well, the, there were thousands of Taliban that had been put in the Shaburgan prison up in the uh, northern part of Afghanistan. And one of the warlords, who later became the minister of defense and the vice president of the country, Dostum, got those prisoners out of the prison, put them into containers and trucked them out to the desert. And then they were shot through the containers and U.S. special forces standing there watching it killing hundreds of Taliban, and then their bodies buried in the desert. And there's a documentary called Afghan Convoy of Death mm -hmm. uh, that, that uh, is there for everyone to see. And so when, when, when the comment is made, well, the Taliban retaliate, well, yeah, they do, because um, the, the warlords that became part of the Afghan government um, had done some pretty nefarious things to them. You know, I'm curious. Um, obviously, we can talk about the U.S. should have just never gotten involved ever. Like, the, the, I mean, we can go back to the 80s to talk about or even maybe the 70s to talk about the U.S. role in Afghanistan uh, and just the chain of events. You know, even the rise of the Mujahideen, right, and these warlords that ultimately ended up fighting over Afghanistan, even the rise of the Taliban. I mean, they come from the refugee camps uh, in Pakistan. Uh, where they were educated in Saudi-funded schools. We can go back and say what the U.S. obviously should have just never got involved, but let's go back to the early 2000s and to where we are now. And let's, okay, let's assume we can't, we can't prevent the U.S. from having gotten involved in Afghanistan. So having said that, my question for the both of you would be, could they have taken steps in the beginning to prevent this from happening? And if so, what, would that, what should that have looked like? And especially, I guess let's start with you, Anne, since you were there in the beginning. Well, if they if all they wanted to do is go after Al Qaeda, they could have done that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they it, it could have been an international, more police action against a small group of people um, that were in an isolated area of Afghanistan, and they certainly knew the route that they were going to be taking out to escape going into Pakistan. So, if if the real purpose was just to uh, go after uh, the remnants of al-Qaeda and the training facility that uh, had been used in Afghanistan, that could have been an isolated um, operation. Um, but it was uh, decided by the Bush administration, you know, that uh, what happened on 9-11 was a good reason. Uh, it was the rationale for a whole sequence of events that not only mm -hmm. involved Afghanistan, but then the invasion and occupation of Iraq, uh, what happened in Syria, and uh, one of the ultimate goals, which has not happened yet, and certainly hope it will not, military action in Iran. Yeah, um, gosh, uh, you know, you look at Al Qaeda in 2001, and they have between 200 and 400 members. And so that's, this, it? I, that's it. That's it. That's according to the US government. That's what <laughs> the FBI. Yeah. 200 to 400, right? I mean, and so that's you want to talk about, how, want to talk about how, how bad this war has been, how counterproductive. You took an organization that had 200 to 400 people worldwide. I mean, this is what Ali Sufan says. This is what the FBI, this is what the 9 11 report says. You know, um, you take an organization that had that many people and look what it did over the last 20 years. You, you, you want any, any, you want to end any discussion on whether this war was worth it? You know, I mean, just bring up that the fact that you, you took an organization that had less than 400 people that then went on to have branches, affiliates, offshoots all throughout the world. Everywhere. Everywhere. Like, took over, took over. They still control Idlib, don't they? Right. Yes. I mean, like, 
Yeah, I mean, so they've, they've, they've taken over entire cities and regions, tens and tens of thousands of members. You know, the other the other uh, uh, statistic is that in 2001, there were, according to the State Department, there were four terror groups in Afghanistan, Pakistan, four. Now the State Department lists there's 20. I mean, so the, the, the any, doing nothing would have been better than what we did because of the results we got from it. And, and also to the what we did to the Afghan people and everything else. Um, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of this, um, the mendacity uh, that's involved and then the the the. Um, the careerism, the lack of uh, 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 the lack of courage uh, within the U.S. government. Um, look, I mean, this goes back to, to the 70s in, in 1978 or 79. I can't remember which the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan was kidnapped and then he was killed when they tried to rescue him and everything. But the people who kidnapped him were the people who were the Mujahideen. So we, we actually, the U.S. government started funding the Mujahideen in 1979, uh, about six months before the Soviet Union invades. And this is Zygmunt Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, his plan to bait the Soviet Union into a trap in Afghanistan yeah. to give them the wrong Vietnam. And that was successful, right? Uh, you know, and, and this, is, this is not rumor. This, Brzezinski himself admitted to this, as well as Bob Gates did, too, the former uh, Secretary of Defense and CIA uh, chief. But, you know, I mean, so literally these people have just kidnapped your ambassador and he's dead because of it. And now you're going to give them money because you think you can control them and manipulate them because of a bigger. And that's the biggest tragedy, I think, of all for Afghanistan is that what we have done to the Afghans these last 40 years has almost nothing to do with the Afghans. It's right. all about the Soviet Union. It's it's been about Pakistan. It's been about Iran. Uh, it, it, it's it's now it's going to be about China. Uh, you know, it's about Russia, et cetera. And, and, and so we, we've literally using these people as pawns, um, as, as not just figurative pawns, but literal pawns, right, um, to accomplish our uh, our greater geopolitical goals as uh, as described and dictated by uh, political appointees in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I mean, like these, these men and women who think that they're they're playing a game of risk, basically. And that their goal is to, and they do. I mean, part of this is is is, is not just protecting the American empire, but expanding it, right? Yeah. This idea that we have to maintain what we have, but also you always want the empire to expand. But I mean, the the, the what, what could have been different, yeah, was if we had uh, more people. I think of of, of principle uh, who weren't going to allow the lies to inform and decide all our decision making. Um, but I mean, this went to the top. I mean, if you look at, at, at President Obama in Bob Woodward's book, uh, Obama's Wars, uh, he, Obama himself is, is unconvinced of this. Obama doesn't believe it's going to work. I mean, it says it right there in the book. He says this. But what does he do? He sends this quarter million man army into Afghanistan. Right. I mean, so like I mean, like so I'm not sure what could have been done differently because the, the system we have. Look, you go back to, to 2000, um, look at Bill Clinton's presidency, look, and then look at what the, uh, George Bush wanted to do foreign policy-wise coming into office. Clinton's the one that really um, 
uh, causes this pivot to Asia, right? He's the one who sends the aircraft carriers into the Taiwan Straits, the South China Seas. He's the one who really, if you're gonna, if you need to to, dic to delineate or, or define a date for our issues with China beginning, it, it comes with Clinton. But Bush comes in office and he wants to focus on China, and so do the people around him. And Rumsfeld wants to transform the Department of Defense to be able to fight China, you know, like that kind of thing. But what happens is the empire that we have sucks us in it's we're basically in quicksand right so these issues occur what happens in, with, with 9 11 occurs which was 9 11 was because of our empire had nothing to do with of course al-qaeda hating our freedoms had everything to do with our troops being in saudi arabia our daily bombing and sanctions of iraq and our support for israel uh you know and their occupation of palestine um you know i mean so there, there's I'm not sure if there is anyone who would have been in power who would have done anything differently because this is what the American empire dictates for itself because of the reality of the empire. Um, and so this, this is the concern going forward is that we're not really disengaging from Afghanistan. We're going to have it's just going to become an officially secret war, right? I mean, you're going to have all their operations there are going to be done by CIA special operations and uh, increasingly by drones. Um, and if there's one drone involved in any air operation, that entire air operation is, is covert and classified, which means you've got an officially secret war. Everything by law that's going to be happening in Afghanistan militarily because it's CIA special operations or drones is classified. So you, you have and this this lines back up then, right, with what we've been doing in Syria, what we've been doing in Yemen, what we've been doing all throughout Africa across the entire continent. Um, so, you know, we're going to still be engaged with this uh, because we have this empire. And until we dismantle the empire and disengage from this type of uh, the, our colonial nature, we're just going to continue to be, be uh, sucked into these things, basically. And then not just sucked into them, then make it worse by our own actions, our own decisions. Yeah, and I, I hear what you're saying about the impact that has what's happened to the Afghan people, I think it's really heavy to think about the scale of devastation as well as the, the torture that has been so clearly documented against the Afghan people carried out by a, a range of forces, including the U.S. military um, particularly. And uh, I'm thinking, I'd like to get your reaction to, to what you think the symbolism is of these forces leaving or, or what it would, maybe it's not even symbolic, what it means to Afghan people that these forces are leaving these bases that have taken on such a notorious reputation that is well-deserved. I mean, when I saw the headline that forces have left Bagram Air Base, I'm thinking of all the horror stories I've read about what's happened at Bagram in the last 10 to 20 years and what it might mean for Afghan people to believe that perhaps some of those nightmares are, are not going to recur in their country. Anything you want to say? I mean, we, we can go, let's start with Matt and then we'll, 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 we'll go to N after. You know, I just want to follow up on the inevitability of all this too. The, um, you know, in 2014, the, the, the journalist Patrick Coburn described the Iraqi army when the Iraqi army folded, you know, um, he said, well, it's not a military, it's a business venture. 
Uh, you know, you purchase your division. If you're a division commander, you purchase that spot. If you're a brigade commander, you purchase that spot. And then it becomes a patronage network. That's the same thing the United States built in Afghanistan with the Afghan army. So what we're seeing when the Afghan army is dissolving as it is, is from what I understand, from what I can gather from people over there and just from my own you know, beliefs about this, is that the, the, the money is no longer showing up to pay these guys. You've basically built a 300,000 man army that is uh, through a whole corrupt Patriots network where um, you know, you have, of course, half that army is probably ghost soldiers don't exist. It's just payroll being padding. But the ones who are fighting are fighting because of pay. Uh, because they because the situation is so bad there that the only way they can keep their families alive is by joining the Afghan army or Af Afghan police forces and getting a couple hundred dollars a month. Uh, you know, it's something like 70 percent of Afghans live on less than one dollar a day. I mean, that's a, that's the state of Afghanistan. So um, you have basically now that the end is coming near, of course, the money is no longer flowing out to those soldiers and police. So they're walking away, you know, because the people who are controlling the money are afraid that no more money is going to come. So they're not, you know, they're not paying out what they normally would be. So that's, I think, why we're seeing this collapse. And it was inevitable because this is the army the American built. And this is the same kind of army that the Americans built in Iraq, same kind of army we built in Vietnam, so on and so forth. Right. Um, but, you know, with regards to, I think, what the Afghans are experiencing, um, you know, the, the devastation is I, I actually was being interviewed by a, a Japanese journalist about this the other day. And he asked me about this and I said, it's something that, you know, I don't think your readers can understand. And then I remembered who I was talking to. And, you know, of course they can. They, they have, you know, their grandparents and great grandparents, you know, the American Air Force and Navy burnt down, what, 80 percent of Japanese cities or something like that, dropped two atomic bombs. But even the, the fire bombings were even worse in many ways. And um, so they grew up in that desolation. And that's what Afghans are experiencing, the desolation. There's no industry there. There's there's no, I mean, all these things that we supposedly built for the Afghans don't exist. You know, the, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, uh, John Sopko, who's appointed by Congress, uh, he's, he went out to try, they went out to try and find all like these healthcare centers we supposedly built. They couldn't find 90% of them. The estimates are that 80 to 90 percent of all the things that the Americans said they built, schools, uh, courthouses, uh, healthcare centers, et cetera, either were never built or have been, you know, have fallen down or whatever. So, you know, it, it's not just what we've done to them. It's also the lies that you hear repeated over. I mean, what you guys are talking about when David Petraeus or Max Boot or John Bolton go on Meet the Press and they repeat and then it's repeated again by all these American journalists about how great the occupation has been for the Afghan people. And they obviously haven't met any Afghans. I mean, or the ones they have are the ones who are benefiting from the American occupation. And there are Afghans who have made millions of dollars off of this. Um, so, yeah, the desolation, uh, the devastation, it, it's, it's, you know, and it just and it won't stop. Right. I mean, you look at now, um, even if we had a magic wand and stopped everything right now and every uh, the guns all went silent and bombs were, were you know, you're still going to have generations dealing with the consequences of this war. Uh, we know that trauma uh, is passed down uh, through children. So grandchildren can have traumatic effects because we know this. I mean, if people don't believe it, look it up. It's a real thing. I mean, this is what we've done to people, let alone 
what we, you know, the amount of explosives that are in ground, the way we've poisoned the ground, the way we've destroyed. I mean, and then the other part of this is that war is one big revenge cycle. So you had the civil war for 40 years. How do you stop that cycle? Uh, you know, but, um, but yeah, and I, I, I'm sure you have, uh, um, you know, your thoughts too. Well, you've identified so many aspects of this that, that we as a, an American population who have paid for this must acknowledge. I mean, uh, a heck of a lot of the money that was uh, uh, put into Afghanistan didn't end up in Afghanistan. It ended up in the pockets of the military industrial complex corporations. Much of it ended up in uh, Dubai and Doha. I mean, there are huge Afghan neighborhoods where the money just went straight to purchase big condominiums there. Yeah. Uh, if you look at, uh, well, the trauma, I mean, that is something that we, you know, it's not really been documented quite so well in Afghanistan, the effects on Afghan kids, but it certainly has been documented in Gaza, the trauma of continual um, attacks in your in your family, in your neighborhood, in buildings blowing down. And the same can be transferred over to what's happened to people in Afghanistan and Iraq mm -hmm. when they've had uh, years of, uh, of military violence, the trauma for them. You know, we, we see it in here in the United States with the suicides of, uh, of our own uh, military and family members and, you know, the long-term effects of this, but we give very little thought to those Afghans and we give very little thought to the trauma of the families whose uh, loved ones have disappeared. And uh, Kevin, you mentioned Bagram Air Base. Well, notorious Bagram, that was a place where uh, the notorious prison, one of the several in Afghanistan, but the Bagram prison. And then it was from Bagram where on January 11th, 2002, while I was in Afghanistan, and I'll just show you the bifurcation of what was going on in the U.S. government. I was in the U.S. Embassy, and I knew nothing about the CIA flying people they're first they're prison in, in Bagram and then flying them to Guantanamo, where we still now have uh, 39 people uh, mm -hmm. 20 years later. Uh, one person just having been released this last week after having uh, five years of waiting after he'd been cleared for a release, but the Trump administration wouldn't release him. But finally, the, the Biden administration has released him to go back to, uh, to Morocco, where he came from. But the, the trauma that Bagram Air Base has, has caused, uh, that was the place where we flew into from, from uh, Islamabad, Pakistan in December of 2001. Uh, that was, it was being held by a very small group of uh, uh, U.S. military and CIA at the time, uh, but it became the, uh, one of the largest military bases the U.S. has ever had. And when we see the pictures of the, uh, the departure of the U.S. Uh, kind of in the middle of the night from what the reports are that all of a sudden the Afghans woke up the next morning and there weren't many U.S. military left and a lot of the main infrastructure for the, uh, for the airport uh, had been either taken or destroyed uh, by the U.S. forces. So it is a, it is a name that will live in infamy in uh, in the annals of the history of Afghanistan, and should live in uh, in uh, infamy in uh, in U.S. history also.
Yeah, we left like we left hundreds of trucks there, but took the keys. I mean, what kind of <laughs> assholes do that? I mean, like yeah. seriously, like that's what you're dealing with. Assholes, here. That's assholes of, who like lit a fire, lit, lit a fire on the way in, and they're lighting one on the way out. Hello, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this past week's episode. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'd like to ask you to become a subscriber of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. You can become a subscriber by going to rockfin.com slash unauthorized dis, rockfin.com slash unauthorized D-I-S. And if you do not want to become a subscriber to our Rockfin channel, you could also go and become a patron at patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure, another way to support us. If you become a subscriber at Rockfin, you get access to our channel for, for one sum, I believe it is dollars, and then you get access to content from a range of other channels, including Abby Martin, and Jackson Hinkle and Status Coup to name some of the few people who post to Rockfin. We also have at Patreon, you can give a lower amount if you're if you're unable to do 10 per month. So that's a way uh, we keep all our options available so that you can support our show and encourage the kind of independent media that we produce, encourage the sort of discussions that we had this past week. So thank you. And we wish you all the best. I want to take a moment to, I know we're supposed to be talking about Afghanistan, but I, I, since you both have, um, especially you, Matthew, but also, you know, Annie resigned over the war in Iraq. I was in Iraq a few weeks ago and something so strikes me as so different between Iraq and Afghanistan in the sense that the U S leaving definitely the, the Afghan government was so dependent on the U S and the U S made this awful deal that sidelined the Afghan government to the point where it made it much easier for, uh, the country to become less stable and for the Taliban to take, to eat up more and more territory. Whereas I'm just thinking to myself, you know, there's about 2,500 U S troops still in Iraq. The Iraqi parliament voted last year after the U S killed, murdered Qasem Soleimani and, um, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, they voted for the U.S. to leave. The U.S. still has not left, and it's caused problems between the U.S. and the PMF, where there's like a tit for tat between them. But I was just thinking to myself, you know, if the U.S. left Iraq, nothing would change, because Iraq actually is a much, I'm not, I mean, I, Iraq and Afghanistan are very different. Iraq is a much more stable state. Like, the security of Iraq wouldn't deteriorate at all if the U.S. left. It's not like a state that's completely dependent on the US for it to exist. And there also isn't like ISIS has been defeated. There's not some insurgent group uh, like there is with the Taliban that could like take over areas. So I guess I'm curious, I'm gonna make a comment that you can either agree or disagree with, but I started thinking to myself, like why is it that the US can leave Afghanistan, but not Iraq? I know there was a lot of people in the US and the military industrial complex who were very much against leaving Afghanistan. But that said, it still happened. Whereas I can't see any way the U.S. will leave Iraq. And so it leads me to conclude that the U.S. has decided Afghanistan's just not as important as it might have been before to U.S. empire, whereas Iraq still very much is. And I'm curious if you would agree or disagree with that or if there's comments you would add to that, what your thoughts are on that. I, I think the American government is so um, uh, obsessed with Iran 
Um, and, and of course, Iran has a major role in Iraq, right? And then, of course, then Iraq is the land bridge that they always talk mm -hmm. about, right, between Iran and Syria. But the obsession with Iran, I think, is what is driving American policy in Iraq. Uh, yeah. The same thing with the obsession with Iran drove American policy in Syria. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Michael Vickers, the guy who was the uh, basically in charge of that war, for the Department of Defense, he was the head of special uh, special operations and low intensity conflict. He wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post and basically said that that the war was our chance to defeat Iran, the war in Syria, right? I mean, so I think it's it's got it's got to do with that, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this obsession with it. Um, the other thing too, there haven't been American casualties uh, in uh, Iraq in quite a long time. Whereas up until uh, the Doha agreements, there were there were not a lot, but 15 or 20 Americans being killed in Afghanistan every year. So I, yeah. I think that's got a lot to do with it, too. This idea that if you can keep and this is why the Americans have gone to this. The American military has fought and, and Afghanistan is kind of the last one fitting into the fold here, um, uh, which is kind of funny because it's the first in this war on terror. Right. This this war, war on terror air quotes there. But the. Um, you know, I mean, you have this war, this world war that the United States is waging throughout the Muslim world that goes from the Atlantic coast of Africa all the way to Pakistan. And it's done by CIA special operations and uh, drones, you know, I mean, and so you have this these secret wars all through what would have been. You've got to understand, too, the mindset of these people who are in power. These are people who read Sam Huntington's Clash of Civilizations <laughs> and Francis Fukuyama's End of History. And it really affected them and they believe it. And they believe that these are the borderlands that we have to control. That the phrase that the CIA and special operations use, I'm sure your listeners have heard this before, is mowing the grass. So you've got to constantly be over there mowing the grass, keeping the barbarians down. And that makes everybody in DC happy because that allows the army to focus on Russia, right? They can have their armored divisions, allows you to buy new tanks and artillery pieces. You know, the, the army just added two armored brigades to it. Uh, you know, I mean, in the last couple of years, we, we've seen, so that's, I forget how many tanks are in an armor brigade, but a lot, you know, I mean, so two of them. Too many. Right, yeah, too many. Yeah. And then, you know, the Navy gets the focus and the Air Force get the focus on China, because how do you, how do you justify a half billion dollar bomber plane? The B-21 costs about a half billion dollars, $13 billion aircraft carriers. I think the new submarines are about $10 billion. How do you, how do you justify that? So one of the things too, with this is that it's such a racket but everybody in the Pentagon is kind of getting what they want, you know, and, and it's, yeah. Well, and I would add that uh, if you if you think kind of Afghanistan had been the forgotten war, what's going on in Syria and the use of some of the uh, bases in Iraq for U.S. forces in doing things in Syria, I mean, that's that's totally out of the news. It's only when a rocket comes in and hits one of those bases that all of a sudden we focus back like, what are those guys doing there anyway? What's happening? Here? You know? Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's a real strange dynamic that is strange purposely because our government doesn't want us to to remember <laughs> that we have twenty five hundred, just the, the, virtually the same amount that we of military that we have in Afghanistan right now. Uh, that we still have that uh, that force that's over in uh, Western Iraq and and Syria. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, you know, the, the blinders that we we have on our own eyes here are pretty substantial. And thank goodness for you all who are 
good investigative reporters that kept digging around and go to these places. And wow. Rania, I'm very uh, interested that, you know, you, you've just come back from, from Iraq. And so it's a place that I have never been. And purposely, oh. I, I, I have not been there because I, I'm not fatalistic about things. But when you resign over something, sometimes you get this feeling that, well, maybe I ought not to go to that place. <laughs> Because they're just there's karma going around, and although I resigned <laughs> over it, there's going to be karma for the U.S. on it. And I might get to be the recipient of it. You know, it's interesting because uh, Iraq is now a relatively stable country. They've defeated ISIS. I mean, there's still some pockets, but um, they're dealing with it. But for the most part, you know, Iraq is is also interesting because you know the U.S. did this regime change war in Iraq quite successfully, right? They took out the government of Saddam Hussein. And they put in place a government that they liked more. Um, but ultimately, what's happened is Iran, Iraq is now a country that is quite close to Iran. And there's, of course, the popular mobilization forces, what the U.S. government calls the Iranian-backed militias, which are really just Iraqi paramilitaries who have an Iraqi agenda, who happen to also be partnered with Iran. Um who are very popular and are very and they're very anti-American and they're anti-American because the U.S. murdered their their one of their most admired commanders mm -hmm. last year. They also murdered Qasem Soleimani and they also blame the U.S. for the rise of ISIS because the U.S. was fueling the rise of ISIS with its policy in Syria. Uh, but the reason I note that is because you know the U.S. spent all this money and resources and people died and they destroyed a country in order to put in place a government that is pro-American. And it's been 20 years almost, and the government in place in Iraq is still isn't quite as pro-American as America wants. So you'll see these like neocon types writing articles. You know, they don't say it this way, but essentially they want to regime change Iraq again <laughs> because it didn't work out right. And so I find that so interesting. But also the other thing I would add about Iraq is, and Syria is, you know, we talk about U.S. forces on the ground, but what, you know, I think what we're seeing now is the U.S. Uh, isn't sending invading forces and occupying forces in in the great numbers that they did 20 years ago, right? Or even 10 years ago. Now, a lot of this war is done with the small, you know, kind of special operations forces and, you know, small units that make up 2,500 in Iraq or whatever, but then also the sanctions, the, the economic mm. warfare. And that's really what's what's tearing apart these countries right now with Syria. It's the sanctions. But with Iraq, uh, I was there the day I got there that night, the entire Iraqi electricity grid shut down and it was so hot outside. It was like oh. it had been 120 degrees that day. So it was like really painful not to have air conditioning. And um it turns out that the reason the Iraqi electricity grid shut off, partly, not entirely, but partly, was because Iraq takes a, Iraq takes a certain amount of, of power from Iran. It purchases it. Uh, but because of U.S. sanctions on Iran, Iraq has not been able to pay, to actually make the payment to Iran because of sanctions make it impossible to make any uh, financial transactions to Iran in U.S. dollars. And so they cut off, the, so the Iran cut off the electricity. Anyways, the point is just to say that, you know, there's so many ways that the U.S. is 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 going about uh, its wars in these regions. It's not just people on the ground. So I'm glad that Matthew said earlier, you know, the war in Afghanistan might seem like it's over, but there's still going to be CIA operating there and who knows what else. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the CIA has a... Um at least a 10,000 man army there. 
you know, I mean, a, a proxy force. And that's what you see along with, with this American way of warfare is we use proxy forces, you know. So all throughout Africa, we have proxy forces, whether they be government or militia, all through the Middle East we do. I mean, we used the Kurds that way in Syria. Uh, we used the, the, the uh, uh, P, uh, popular mobilization forces in Iraq for our own, you know, to defeat ISIS, even though they're, you know, they had Iranian commanders with them. Uh, the insanity of all this. Uh, the, 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 um, it's hard to even articulate, uh, just how, um, you know, the, the lying to ourselves about this, about what we've done over there. Uh, I mean, I want to go to Iraq so I can apologize. And I know a lot of other veterans do too, as well. And I know many of Vietnam veterans who have done that. And I know Vietnam veterans who actually live in Vietnam because they work on uh, uh, demining, you know, getting uh, explosives out of the ground, helping with Agent Orange because they're trying to repent. They're trying to atone for what they did. But there's so many here in this country. I just came across a post on social media the other day, uh, some guy who had been in the Navy over in Iraq, talking about how he had kept Iraqi families safe from Al Qaeda. Right. And the dissonance that exists is this, this like, dude, we're the ones who brought Al Qaeda to Iraq. You know, what I mean, like it, like the, the dissonance that we have in this country towards what we've done to these people. But then also, too, we have a dissonance towards what we've done to ourselves. The, the, the bankrupting we have done, uh, we have spent just on interest alone. Just on interest alone. And so every time somebody says something about you hear somebody, a politician say we don't have money for it. Remember this just on interest alone, debt payments uh, and interest payments. We have spent almost a trillion dollars on these wars just on debt and interest payments. Right. A trillion dollars every year. The U.S. government, the third largest item in the U.S. government budget after the DOD, after the VA is debt and interest payments on previous military and war spending. About $175 billion this year, I believe. Right? I mean, like, so th th what we're doing to ourselves, then plus the suicides, which Ann brought up, which, you know, uh, for every suicide, uh, according to the suicide prevention people, 165 people are directly affected. You know, think of family, friends, neighbors, community, uh, coworkers, schoolmates, et cetera, right? That just ripples out. I mean, so you have entire communities that are devastated by the suicides. We have approximately two Iraq and Afghan suicides, every, two Iraq and Afghan veteran suicides every day. Uh, I mean, so think about that, how that just ripples out. But then the other thing, too, that people really aren't connecting here with Afghanistan is, you know, the numbers just came out last week for um, how many overdoses we had in this country last year, 93,000. Um, and in previous years, it's been 70,000, 80,000. Where is that heroin coming from? The heroin is coming from Afghanistan. The DEA will lie about it and say it's not. But if you look at the DEA's own information, it's impossible for us not to be getting that heroin from Afghanistan because Mexico and South America doesn't, don't produce enough heroin to meet our demands. And if the Afghans are producing 90% of the world's heroin or, or illicit opiates, it has to be coming here. So, I mean, if people think that these wars are not affecting the American public, they're, you know, they're, they're just, you know, they're lying to themselves. Uh, because, again, just, just take this opioid epidemic. You know, when, when people couldn't get their Oxycontin, they ended up turning to heroin. And where was that heroin come? And it just happened to coincide with this, you know, uh, uh, Afghanistan went from producing almost 0% of the world's uh, illicit opiates to producing 80 to 90% of the world's illicit opiates during our occupation. 
You know, I'm not saying American soldiers were loading up bags of, of heroin and stuff like that, but you know who was? The very people we put in government. I mean, there's this big lie about the Taliban being behind the drug, drug trade. Yeah, they tax it, but, you know, the Taliban get most of their money from uh, people in the Gulf, from the Saudis, the Qataris, the Emiratis. That's where most of their money comes from. Them from the Pakistanis, them from siphoning off yeah. our contracts and stuff there, right? But who's the biggest drug players in Afghanistan have been the people we put in power? Hamid Karzai's brother was the biggest drug lord in southern Afghanistan, where the most drug production was occurring. You know, so this has had a real effect on the American people, whether or not they want to acknowledge it or not. I'm here to wind down the conversation and Rania had to had to leave, but I'm going to uh, throw out this as a, as a, as a concluding question and, and for any final thoughts you have on what we've been talking about in this show. And again, thank you for your time. Uh, the thought that I want to leave with is all these people like yourselves who were willing to take risks and call attention to what was happening in the war in Afghanistan. We can even throw in Iraq as well, but people who have been willing to sound the alarm about what have gone on in these wars and have, and were silenced and were effectively written out of any coverage in the media. So people didn't hear, from them, uh, uh, reporting on what they had to say uh, was a blip in the alternative or independent press, and then and that was it. Or they they were it was there for a few days and it went away. I mean, in, uh, in the most establishment sense and packaged in a way that you would have thought people would really respond to. There's Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis who had the Afghanistan papers, and uh, to to me to hear what people are saying in the last couple of weeks and, and talking about losing Afghanistan, it, it's, it's, it's somewhat offensive to me because this is the exact same thing that was being echoed and expressed by an individual about a decade ago um, and in relation to the Afghanistan war of, of recognizing that the war had been lost and that now it's becoming conventional to say that we've lost the war in Afghanistan without any respect or any consideration of people before who stuck their neck out to to say this. Um, and then there's, you know, those whistleblowers who are being cracked down. I'm thinking of the disclosures we've had from Chelsea Manning. I'm thinking about the fact that the Justice Department is zealously going about playing a sick game with a veteran who clearly has post-traumatic stress disorder. His name's Daniel Hale. And they're going to, on July 27th, try to put him in prison for the longest sentence ever for an unauthorized disclosure, um, even longer than reality winner. I just saw the mm -hmm. sentencing memo and reported on it. They want to put him in prison for nine years for those disclosures. So I, I, I would like to conclude. I don't know if you know there's any names or any people or anything you want us mention before we wrap up. But I just would like to give a nod to the people who have said over the past decades, the two decades that we've had of this war, who have stuck their necks out and said something and, 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 and did what we needed to have done in order to try and stop this war. Uh, we can start with, we can start with Anne and then we'll, okay. we'll end with that. Well, uh, thank you, Kevin, for bringing up all these people who mm -hmm. have uh, risked their lives, really, uh, if not their physical lives, certainly their emotional lives by their acts of conscience of challenging the U S government's policies on wars and uh, torture and, you know, you name it. And 
the what's happening to old Dan Hale now, um, uh, the latest in the string of of folks who have uh, uh, dared challenge uh, the U.S. government and the U.S. media. I mean, we gotta we gotta uh, say to the to the mainstream media, you know, you're you're owned not only by your corporate interests, by, but by the U.S. government in, in mm-hmm. much uh, respect because uh, we can't get the coverage that we need for uh, these legitimate acts of conscience. And I'll just mention shamelessly a little book that uh, <laughs> uh, I uh, co-authored, let's see if it's very good. Voices of very Conscience, good. and this was in 2007. And this is a book of profiles of people at that time who had spoken out against the uh, war in Iraq, three of us diplomats that, that resigned over it, uh, the war in Iraq, what was going on in Afghanistan, the torture, Guantanamo, all of that. Um, and since then, since 2007, which was the cutoff for that book, and probably 45 people that we profiled in that, you know, there's been such a raft of, of uh uh, folks, uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, Julian Assange, going on with the with WikiLeaks and publishing that. We've got uh, John Karyaku, we've got Matt Ho, we've got uh, Reality Winner, we've got Jeffrey uh, Sterling, we've got Thomas Drake. We've just got a uh, and then Dan Hale, of course, and uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, uh, Davis, who. Uh, you know, the, a lot, but we can't seem to break into uh, the mainstream media. So the majority of Americans realize that there is dissent, that there are people of conscience that are uh, losing their jobs, that can't get another job, who go to jail uh, because they have the courage uh, to stand up to the lies uh, that our government tells us. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, first, I want to thank you for your uh article on, on Daniel Hale that you published um, this week um, as well too. If, if people haven't read it in the center, please do. It, it, it's really, um, it's heartbreaking, but it, it, it's, it's needs to be read as well as there's a, um, a good article, a good essay in New York magazine by a journalist named, I think Carrie Holly, I think is her name. Yeah, It's very um, excellent. It's excellent. Yeah. It, it, on, on Daniel as well. And just what he's going through. And I can't remember now, Kevin, if it was your article or her article that discussed how the government is, is they're basically charging him with, with allowing the Islamic state to learn how to avoid our drone strikes. Like they're, they're, they're crocking up some nonsense about how he was aiding and abetting terrorists um, and how so much of that information goes to the judge's secret and the public can never. So we're, we basically have secret trials in this country. Um, and the fact that the media doesn't cover any of this, the fact that Julian Assange is is has been living a life like he's been living for doing nothing more than exposing war crimes, how you could have uh, the FBI's main witness against Assange come out a couple weeks ago and said, yeah, I was lying about everything I said. And none of the mainstream, none of the corporate media in the United States covers that. Uh, it, this is, this is a, 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 a first and foremost, a, 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 a free speech, speech, uh, free speech uh, journalist, a First Amendment case, and none of the major media. Uh, and the other thing, too, is that the major media, they've indicted themselves so many times. I mean, no less of a, a person, no less than a, a media celebrity than Katie Couric, you know, spoke about the corporate pressure that the networks were under in the run up of during their Iraq war 
to uh, uh, to only give positive coverage. Katie Couric said that. I mean, other Jessica Yellen at CNN said this, and they, you've had so many people from MSNBC, Phil Donahue, Jenky Uger, uh, Dylan Radigan, Crystal Ball. I mean, all these people who have worked at these places have said, yes, there is collusion between the media, the corporations, and the White House, Pentagon, CIA, et cetera. And we just keep going along with it. It just, I mean, more and more people are not going along with it, but it's a real problem because that's what enables these wars to keep rolling. That's what enables, you know, unless you have journalists like yourself, Kevin, or Rania, who are, you know, Rania willing to go to Iraq, guys like Nick Terse, who do such great work on Africa. I mean, unless you have the journalists, uh, you know, who are willing uh, the folks over at the gray zone, et cetera, uh, who are willing to put their bodies uh, and, you know, and also, too, I mean, I'm sure you're not, you know, you're not living like uh, other journalists who work for uh, CNN or Fox. All right. I mean, like you're not you're not, you're not making three hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, you know, with flying first class everywhere on and on and on. Uh but you're living a, a journalist's life, though. You're actually doing journalism as opposed to being spokespeople for the government and corporations, which is what we see so many of these. these, these. But it is. It, it's frustrating. Um, uh, Anne riled off a bunch of people. She included my name with a list of people, and my name should not be included with them. I never, I never, I never had any danger or anything, had any sacrifice like they did, that's for sure. But um, it's true. You know, I mean, you see – as I said earlier, David Petraeus, John Bolton, Max Boot, they're all on CNN and meet the press and whatever. Uh, and you don't have the people who've been right about these wars the entire time. They're nowhere to be heard, you know, except for on, uh, you know, we call alternative media, you know, which is actually we should we, we really need to change that kind of true journalism, I think. Right. Honest journalism or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's but it is it, it's maddening. And when I get upset like this, I start to ramble. So I'm going to shut myself down right now. I will uh, I'll put all of our lovely faces up on the screen as we conclude. And I'll uh, thank you for this enlightening conversation and, and giving me so much of your time. I mean, I know that I've we, we've had you for almost an hour and a half and, and Matt a little bit more. And uh, so uh, I don't know if there's anything um, you needed to say. Matt, and is there anything you want people to, to to go see? Like, where can they find your work? Or is there any campaign or anything particular that should be promoted? And then after that, we will say goodbye to all of the listeners. Well, certainly stand with uh, Daniel Hale, the website for that, and to write letters to yeah. the to the sentencing judge uh, uh, will will be something very good. Of course, the continuing campaign for the release of uh, Julian Assange is another one. Um, I'll, I'll mention again this little book because we're going to have a webinar, um, a series uh, through World Beyond War uh, in their book club. And we're going to have a series of four, uh, four talks where we will be interviewing people that we have in, in that book to remind people that, you know, there are lots of people out there that are standing up to our government. Thank you. Yeah, I, I would say... Um... There's an organization both Ann and I are part of called the Eisenhower Media Network. Uh, people, please go check that out. Um, it is a collection of uh, U.S. veterans who are speaking against the wars and everything. We're trying to get more media attention. So the more people who 
follow us on Twitter, et cetera, the more, you know, uh, uh, the more support, the better. Um, and the other organization is Code Pink. Uh, Code Pink is always doing great work. Uh, if you if you're looking for any type of cause to follow, Code Pink will be there. I mean, and um, yeah, I, I can't say enough about them. Am's a member of Code Pink. Um, uh, and uh, most of my heroes are in Code Pink. Uh, to be honest, that that's where my my heroes all reside, whether it's Ann or Medea Benjamin or Aria Gold or, or Jody or, or, you know, on and on and on. Um, so Code Pink is another organization. Um, and and, and then, for veterans, let's not forget uh, Veterans for Peace and About Face, Veterans Against the War. That's right. Both organizations are terrific, do a lot um, and need support. And need support. And then, of course, just to, to reaffirm what Ann said, please write to Daniel Hale. Go to Stand with Daniel Hale. Uh, uh, follow. Uh, do what you can for Julian Assange. Um, you know, there, there are uh, these are these are people. Same with Ed Snowden. I mean, these are people who have have given their lives like actually they're giving their lives uh, for us uh, they are for what they what they've done um and for people they will never meet right i mean so please do what you can for them and then support yeah. and then and then also too i uh, please support kevin and Maranya. if you're listening to this please support them subscribe give them money because that's uh, otherwise kevin's gonna have to go to work in you know an amazon factory or something like that so please uh <laughs> right I mean, yeah. yeah we we don't want that because i don't want to be funding jeff bezos space shuttle launches because uh, that's that's what that's apparently what the workers are doing they're all working right. to send jeff bezos to space that's what we learned that's what we learned this last week is they're all subsidizing rich billionaires space anyways um yeah and, and on, a, on a serious note all those all those organizations you mentioned these are the ones that in the void that we had out in in the United States, where there's there's not a lot of anti-war mobilization, these are the these are the groups that have been on the front line, making sure that there's at least a presence when there were milestones in the Afghanistan war, when there were milestones in the Iraq war, pushing for withdrawal and an end to these wars. So okay, I'm going to end here. So thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Anne. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this past week's episode. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'd like to ask you to become a subscriber of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. You can become a subscriber by going to rockfin.com slash unauthorized dis, rockfin.com slash unauthorized D-I-S. And if you do not want to become a subscriber to our Rockfin channel, you could also go and become a patron at patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure another way to support us. If you become a subscriber at Rockfin, you get access to our channel for, for one sum. And then you get access to content from a range of other channels, including Abby Martin and Jackson Hinkle and Status Coup, to name some of the few people who post to Rockfin. We also have at Patreon, you can give a, a lower amount if you're, if you're unable to do 10 per month. We keep all our options available so that you can support our show and encourage the kind of independent media that we produce, encourage the sort of discussions that we had this past week. So thank you and we wish you all the best.